self-hosted shows back again, and it's been too long since our buddy Brent was here, Alex, and I know you were just hanging out with him, so you thought it'd be a good time to bring him back. Welcome, Brent. It's been too long. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't even really remember the last time. Was I at? No, I wasn't at Alex's. Anyways, a while. I think it was July. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. But since then, I have been introduced to the magic of Boots In. How did I do? How did I do? Is it Boots In? <laughs> or is it Booz In? <laughs> so uh, I've been attempting to uh, teach Alex the Canadian ways, or the French Canadian ways of uh, saying Boots In specifically, because boots in. most people go. get it wrong. So I gave him a trick, you know? It's kind of like saying Boots In, but you got to flip the B Now I regret asking. Yeah, it's just he's... He's getting there. So for those that aren't learned and scholars of the Canadian culinary delicacy that is poutine, it's chips, French fries, and gravy with cheese curds. If you're British, the so I had two or three poutines whilst I was up there, and one of them had like this bisto gravy on it, and it was really beefy and strong, and it was it was fine. And then the next one I had was this beautiful, delicate like chicken gravy on it that was actually pretty pretty nice. Uh, and then the other one was just like a you know cheap airport one that was not good at all. Soybean oil. It's weird that the Canadians view this as a delicacy to me, though, because I mean, it's just <laughs> chips and gravy, isn't it? That's what you get when you're pissed down the kebab house. And it, it sounds like one of those things is good for five minutes, but 15 minutes in, it's just a soggy mess. Wait, wait, wait. You're missing a third of the like essential ingredients, Alex. You said chips and gravy, but necessarily e- each of these had to have cheese curds as well that makes the whole trio yeah i I guess uh, i still have a way to go with my poutine relationship don't i clumps of soggy cheese you gotta have that (laughs) chris come on give it a chance (laughs) but you did also have butter tarts right uh how did those do oh yes yes listeners let me paint you a picture i arrived in calgary airport i came out of the immigration area and brent was there to meet me at the sign after some tribulations and and trials with the rental car situation, which we talked about in the recent Linux Unplugged, by the way, uh, I got to my hotel room and Brent was, uh, he was excited about something. I'm like, what's waiting for me behind this door? Thinking maybe a clown was going to jump out or something. No, 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 no. The sweetheart Brent had filled my mini bar fridge with a couple of bottles of uh, Diet Coke and some orange juice because he knows that of an evening, typically I have an orange juice, but also waiting for me were some English-style scones and some Canadian butter tarts. A delectable, you know, spread. You choose. You probably shouldn't have any of them before bed, but whatever. I can't control you. At the end of a long day on airplanes, let me tell you, that was a, a treat for the eyes and the uh, and the constitution. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, I, whenever you guys get together, it's not just about the food. There's often a lot of gear involved, some tech exchanging happening. And Brent, I know that you got some new to you gear. You've got some gear that's been around for a little bit. And we thought since it's been so long since we got to catch up with you, let's see what you've got in your uh, home lab these days. Yeah, I got to say, guys, like uh, my digital lab seems to change every couple of weeks. I don't even recognize it anymore. Uh, Alex, you brought over this little one liter PC. I didn't even know this was going to happen. You just sort of pulled it out of your bag and you said, here you go. This was part of your collection, but it was also passed down to you from Fuzzy Mistborn, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So that box started life in Pennsylvania and now it's come down to Raleigh for a bit and had a nice summer vacation. And now it's going to go and live up in the frozen tundra with you. (laughs) Well-traveled computers. And so I... 
I don't know why I've, I've sort of fallen in love with this thing. It's an HP pro desk and I kind of love it already, but I haven't even thrown a workload at it yet. It's just such a beautiful size and it just sort of hums. And the Alex, you were showing me, you know, to take the case apart, it's just this beautiful thumb screw and you pull it apart and it's just really well designed. I'm very impressed. And so I'm excited for yeah. this to be uh, part of my life for a while. I need recommendations on what I can throw at the thing. I, I guess it has QuickSync and a whole bunch of other options. So, Well, being a fourth gen Intel CPU, it's very, very early days in the QuickSync train. So uh, I'll put a link in the description or the show notes of the different codecs that all the different QuickSync, you know, all the different Intel CPU generation support of QuickSync. So you do start to get the benefit of QuickSync on these early ones, but it's only once you, once you get to about sixth gen that things start to get really interesting in that space. So, you know, for me, the fourth gen is, I mean, it's, it's useful for things like uh, OpenSense maybe as a router. For you, I mean, it's going to be great just for you to experiment with things like Proxmox, I would have thought. Ooh. Throw some VMs around, some LXC containers, all that kind of stuff. You know, because, you know, for, for Linux Unplugged, you're always testing out new distros. I almost threw Windows on it the other day, but decided instead to throw it on my framework. Now, the framework, Nextcloud, was kind enough to allow me to do this crazy non-standard thing and buy, you know, kind of a cool laptop. Uh, they, they bought it for me, which is amazing. And uh, so I threw Windows on there. As an experiment, it won't be like that long term. <laughs> so which, C which CPU did you go through on the framework? Well, you see, I, of course, had to not do it in a standard way. So I teamed up with a listener, Tomash, who's based in Berlin, had the thing shipped to him, and he is a early framework adopter. So he's had a framework for a long time, 11th gen. And uh, so I guess I got the 14th gen that I ordered, but I don't actually need that performance necessarily. Uh, so I decided to do a swap with him. He paid the little extra on the bill that it required to do the upgrade. He wanted to do an upgrade, but didn't quite, you know, have all the cash to do so and didn't know what to do with the old motherboard. So this was a cool way for me to use his old motherboard, but in the new chassis and with a new monitor and stuff. So it's, you know, that is kind of only possible with a framework. How's the fan noise and stuff, Brent? You know, I noticed it for the very first time. It became annoying to me when I was installing Windows which says a lot. It's a sign. And occasionally, just when Windows was just sitting there doing nothing, I haven't really played with Windows. We're just giving it a test for Linux Unplugged. And uh, yeah, occasionally it just like, especially when Windows is just sitting there doing nothing, all of a sudden the fans would go up like crazy. Like literally it was a fresh install. I hadn't even touched it. It was just sitting there doing nothing. And, uh, and all the updates were done. But that was really the only time I've seen them accelerate in a way that was actually quite loud. I know a lot of people have complained about them. I have not had enough time on the framework to really give it its good paces. But when I had NixOS on there, it was much, much better in that regard. So I don't know if that's just, I don't know. It's just Windows to me. But I could see the installer pushing it. And then there's probably a lot of background tasks when there's a fresh install. Yeah, you know, and of course, as soon as I would go and try to investigate, everything would quiet down. So I feel like almost they're notice, you know, they're doing some background stuff. And as soon as the user does anything, it kind of goes away quietly. So, uh, I mean, that's just me, 
making making stuff up. But I'm looking at your setup from afar, Brent, and you know you've got some some nice gear now. That, I mean, it's older gear, but it's going to be great for like home lab stuff. You got that Starlink, and it just like it it hasn't it hasn't clicked yet. But I feel like there's going to be a you're going to find a total total overhaul at some point when. You kind of when when you realize okay I've got a good high speed connection that's always on, and that really clicks. And if I move, I can even take it with me. And you've got that HP leader, you know that little one liter machine. Now you could set yourself up a really nice little Jellyfin Next Cloud Ooh. system that all runs locally, but like using something like Tailscale or mm. Zero Tier or Nebula, you could still get all those resources at a pretty good reliable connection now with that Starlink. Like I feel like a revolution's gonna come in your way. I think you're so right. I that was never in the realm of possibility for me because I knew it was just you know the, the internet connection was the worst part of the whole thing. So I almost <laughs> treated my local network as though it was offline, except for essentials. That's what I did when I was on LTE. Yeah. So you've gone through this transition as well. Yeah. So it's it's curious to me. I'm almost having to shift my expectations of what's possible here in my little cabin in the woods, which is is actually really cool, and it makes me think about. How hanging out with you two boys, and I've just been behind on all the text because I, you know, it's just like if you're not connected to the internet, then what the hell? <laughs> the first time I streamed a Jellyfin video from my RV while I was out on the go from my phone, it blew my mind, right? Because I used to be able to barely even stream videos to the TV in the RV, let alone like play my media library from the RV on the go. And yeah, and you know, you just combine it with a server and the connection and tail scale or something like that. You're off to the races, Brian. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you build over time. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm sure I'll come back and report. But yeah, Proxmox, Alex, as you mentioned, is in. Well, it's right at the top of the list of the things I'm. Yes. You know, the enablers. But of course, with that comes a bunch of like fancy DNS stuff, and I don't know. We'll see. Well, while you're down here for Linux Fest, we might do some Proxmox installations, so you might get a little experience Ooh, on a couple servers we have there. I'm sure. Oh, mm -hmm. okay, all right, I'm in. And Alex, I know you got some new gear as well, and this is new gear. I mean, literally this week, dear listeners, I uh, I threw a pint of water over my work laptop. So whilst I was in Canada, Apple repaired it. So I've had a brand new laptop, iPhone 15 turned up. Uh, so a new laptop, new phone. I've got a Apple Watch too, which is brand new. So like, it's just there's a lot of new stuff going on. And so when Chris says there's something new, my brain goes, "Well, how does he know about those?" But what he's actually talking about is something that showed up today. We talked about it a little bit last episode. It's a PoE Zigbee radio from Tubes ZB, and this thing arrived today. It is you know a bit bigger than an ESP32, but not much. Uh, I haven't had a chance to plug it in because it really literally only arrived a couple of hours before we pressed record today. Uh, but the idea behind this thing is I'll be able to put it anywhere in my house where there's Ethernet, you know, so I can put it where the signal is going to be most advantageous to me. And then it will connect back over auto discovery to uh, ZHA as part of Home Assistant. It, the, the developer does not recommend Zigbee to MQTT. Uh, he marks it as experimental and not recommended or supported. So I mentioned Zigbee to MQTT last episode. I guess I won't be doing that. I guess I'll be sticking with ZHA. But the smart blinds that I put up whilst I've been away have not been reliable, according to Wife, hence why I ordered this thing. Next episode, I will be digging into this for you. But uh, for now, it's arrived, and 
we can look forward to that. Sorry to have such a stupid question, but you're telling me the ZHA integration on Home Assistant can detect this thing over Ethernet? So it's like also scanning the IP network? Uh, apparently so, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't actually done it yet, but huh. it does say it ships with this, you know, uh, flashcard-sized piece of paper that just says uh, ZHA setup, auto-discovery, or manual setup available at this socket IP address. Man, um, cool. <laughs> That's so, really neat. I'll be curious. And it's yeah. under 80 bucks, so if it solves your problem, that seems well worth it. I think another thing, if you haven't done it already, is put a Zigbee smart plug in that room too because all the smart plugs will generally be repeaters. That's been a that's been my kind of go to solution to patching my Zigbee network. Is oh, if it's a little weak, smart plug in that area. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. What I'm wondering is if I was to want to migrate slowly, slowly, and keep all of my Hue lights and things that are actually bulletproof reliable on the existing Conbi based Zigbee network, and then set this up as a a second ZHA instance within the same Home Assistant. I wonder, can I do that? That's going to be a... I'm almost virtually positive that it has support for multiple controllers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then I'll mig migrate a few devices at a time and hopefully my blinds will work. <laughs> you, you know what? I'm pretty confident you're going to get it probably nailed at just in time for Matter to really take off. Well, that's the nice thing about this thing is it's upgradable to Thread and Matter in the yeah. future too. So oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah. It's future, as future-proof as anything in this space can be. Right. Really. Even though I've had more success with Z-Wave, this is kind of why I've slid over time slowly to the Zigbee camp because it's kind of where things are going. Wasn't Matter supposed to be out by now? Like, wasn't it supposed to be mainstream by now? I think What's there are some. There? No, I think there are some. I mean, they always, they're always talking about various Matter devices in the Home Assistant release streams, so they're out there. Maybe they're just all on Alibaba. <laughs> Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Go there to sign up and get an account for 100 devices for free. And it's a great way to support the show. We go on and on about Tailscale. You know we love it. It's a simple, quick VPN that you can get up and running on all your devices, doesn't matter the platform or the architecture, in just minutes. And if you're an enterprise, it has a lot of great features and solutions for your business and it doesn't require super crazy expensive VPN hardware and software. I've been down that route. But we also hear from our audience. And this week, man, our inbox was full of stories about how Tailscale has improved their home lab and self-hosting setup. And it's, it's perfect for those that also just want to set up some ad hoc networking. And you don't want to have to fuss with opening inbound firewall ports. And maybe you've got a dynamic IP. Or if you're like me, you've got the carrier-grade double NAT soup that is their networking Tailscale punches through all of that. And it's all built on top of WireGuard, so you know the security is super sound. And the management dashboard's slick. They have sharing capabilities that are really great. They've recently announced a partnership with Molvad for exit nodes. And it's also really simple to have Tailscale act as an exit node from your home. So when you're traveling, perhaps you want to look like you're coming from your home IP, you can kind of mix and match like that. There's a lot of nice tooling around Tailscale as well that makes it easy to log into all your systems and send files around it's just really powerful, and they just keep making it better. It just keeps going from strength to strength. And 100 devices, that's pretty legit. So go to tailscale.com slash SSH, support the show, try it out for 100 machines, really see what it can do, and get a sense of why our audience is just raving about it. It's tailscale.com slash SSH.
Well, speaking about these little one-litre PCs, in the interests of covering the news you all might be interested in listening to this show, even though I now have discovered the ways of these one-litre PCs, and I I couldn't really care less about the Raspberry Pi anymore, uh, the Raspberry Pi 5 has been announced. Hooray! Huzzah! (laughs) And if you get a hat, you do get some PCI storage. So that's pretty good to see. I mean, storage is my number one criticism. It's still, though, out-of-the-box SD card-based for primary storage. Okay, there are a lot of cool things on the Raspberry Pi 5, which we should probably talk about at least a little bit. PCIe support is here, although yep. you do have to use a dongle to access the PCI bridge that's there. It's uh, out-of-the-box, I think, PCIe version 2, mm-hmm. but you can set a developer flag or a debug flag to set it to full PCIe 3 interface speed so that's that's nice it has a power button yes <laughs> and a real-time clock i mean those combined we're talking some serious improvements here i know it's almost like it's a real computer now eh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i guess it kind of is i mean i am legitimately looking forward to trying it uh i was a little late on the pre-order because i was on the fence and they're already like at most places tbd on the shipping yeah So, look, I mean, I know I give the Raspberry Pi a hard time, but the reason is because, you know, if you look on eBay right now, I guarantee you, you will find a one litre PC like the one I gave Brent, but a sixth, seventh, eighth gen Intel x86 full CPU with with a full SATA port and maybe even an M.2 slot. And potentially QuickSync. Yeah, for, for maybe $100 or less. Yeah. Now, where the Pi makes sense is use cases that require the gpio that's still a killer use case for the pi also the whole appliance aspect i'm i'm not completely an idiot like i'm i'm still open to the you know the fact that this was great to throw in as part of a 3d printer setup or something like that it's small okay this one's probably going to need active cooling because it i think the power supply they ship with it now is like 25 watts or something which is you know you're going to need a serious amount of cooling to to do that passively and it doesn't ship with a heat sink on the CPU, so. If the case manufacturers come up with something for like a home media PC, I could see folks in our audience picking up the Pi 5 or maybe now a, ch- a cheaper Pi 4 and making a little Cody box out of that, you know, gluing it to the back of your TV. It, I could still see it do those kinds of features, although I I think they dropped H.264 hardware decoding. So I, I don't know, but I, I think it would still make a pretty good Cody box. I'm curious how you boys both feel about the timing. Do you think a Raspberry Pi 5 a year ago would have had you more excited? Do you think this is a little too late? Yes. Yes. Yes, I think so. A Raspberry Pi 5 with an M.2 slot on the back would have had me even more excited. Or 32 gigabytes of eMMC storage. When you look at the performance of competitors like the Rock chip based stuff, the Pi is just, it's in this really difficult adolescent phase where it's you know, during COVID and supply chain issues and all that, like, you, you couldn't buy them. We all, we all know this by now. And during that period, the one litre PC revolution, all those things started to come off their three, four, five year long leases. Uh, I guess as people started working from home as well, that probably contributed to more of them being available. And now you can get such a high level of performance from a five-year-old x86 computer. You, know, you think about when the Pi 1 came out, what was an x86 chip of five years previous like? It was probably... Like a Core, core 2, 2 Duo? Duo. Yeah. 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 Pulling 100 watts of power. 
and that was a totally different equation. Right. Whereas now it just feels to me like it, I don't really know, unless you need the GPIO, I don't really know who it's for. Yeah. Anymore. You know, I used to make the argument on this show it was low power because I was in a battery situation, solar situation, but the Intel, you know, CPUs have been solving that for years and that work has paid off. Yeah. You know, what I could see getting excited about is a CM5. You know, the speed and performance, the PCI support, something that you put into a a daughter board that has the, the SATA ports and everything you actually need. A CM5 could be a pretty cool, at least core, to build things like maybe the next Home Assistant device around or something. Maybe, maybe I'm missing the point here. And it, listeners, if you have strong opinions about why I'm missing the point, please, please write in and tell me why I'm wrong. I would, I would genuinely love to hear that. But Chris is right. You know, you, you look at the power consumption here. It's not 25, it's 27 watts. I got, I got it wrong. You know, that's a, you know, the, the box I sent you, Brent, at peak load is doing 40 watts. But I'd love to see like a Geekbench comparison of that. See, even a fourth gen Intel CPU versus this thing. I suspect the Intel would probably still win. Hmm. Not to mention flexibility around packaging and stuff like ARM, ARM, Packages are still kind of lagging behind, right? It's been years, but yeah, not everything's Assuming on Assuming you can even buy a Raspberry Pi 5 in a timely fashion too. Now, there are some really interesting hats available. You can get a PoE hat for it. An M.2 hat is also available. I believe these hats are all stackable as well. So if you want to do all these things at once, you can do that too. There will be some heat and thermal considerations if you stack multiple um, hats together. So bear that in mind. You're going to need a hat rack. Yeah, these Pi 5 cases are going to be getting weird, man. <laughs> Trying to accommodate all these all these hats. <laughs> you're going to cut all the, yeah, you probably you know what? Brent, somebody is going to create a a hat rack. Yeah, That's yeah. going to be a thing. I mean, it's a good it in, product a, name. And it's a hat rack for a bunch of hats. Heck yeah. I agree with you though, Chris. You know, uh, when when we can get a Turing Pi with the CM5, I mean, we're looking at like a 2.5x lift in performance on the cpu between the raspberry pi 4 and the 5 so i mean i've had a raspberry pi 4 tucked into my prusa behind me for the last four years at this point so i'm kind of used to how slow that feels now if i was just to straight up throw a 5 in there i'm gonna i'm gonna notice that difference so i might still pick one up for my 3d printer um just to be a complete hypocrite but uh <laughs> yeah i think i'm gonna try to get one too i mean i want to be fair to it yeah and you know i i feel like i should I think I, I think I've mentioned this, but you know I'm still using a couple of Pies. Actually, my Pie Hole actually runs on a Raspberry Pi, using USB storage, and um, I have a Shinobi Pie that I turn on when I'm going to be gone for a while, so it's mostly off. But then I have a little smart switch that turns it on if I'm going to be absent, and uh, that still is on a Pie as well, just mostly because it works. And those are not super demanding jobs, like the Shinobi's monitoring two cameras. And the pie holes, you know, everything's pretty much running out of RAM. And for those jobs, they just, I'm going to run them until they die, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. What do you think of the new pricing structure? So you can buy a four gigabyte variant for $60 yeah. or an eight gigabyte variant for $80. So it's a $5 yeah. uplift from the last version. I guess it's okay. I mean, you do get more for it. And it sounds like from the technical analysis that I've read is that the board is capable of 16 gigs of RAM. So maybe next year at some point we see another you know, $95 unit or something that comes with 16 gigs of RAM. Could we not put an SODIM slot on this thing? Oh. Imagine that. That'd be nice. 
Top45HomeLab.com. Big, strong, fast storage servers, and things are really coming along. They're really just about to give out all the details on their new HL15. They say it's almost ready to ship. You've got to go check it out at 45HomeLab.com. A 15-bay server designed to provide the power and storage for a great home lab. And you can reserve your spot right now when it starts to ship in the next few months. Go to 45HomeLab.com. You guys know about 45Drives.com. They've not only been on the show, but of course they've got a great reputation in the industry as well. And after coming on the show, they listen to the feedback and they built something that I think you're going to be really impressed with. And it's almost here. So go to 45HomeLab.com and then be sure to check out 45 Drives too. So go to 45HomeLab.com to get your spot in line and check out 45Drives.com. They do things differently and they support the self-hosting community as well. It's pretty great. It's 45HomeLab.com. It's almost here. Well, it's a new month, October, so that means there's a new Home Assistant release come out. There was a couple of nice UI updates I saw come through today. Yeah, I think I'm actually going to remove my custom hacks installed thermostat thing that's kind of like a ripoff of the Nest. I think I'm going to use their their built-in one now. It's looking really good, and they've just improved the UI in a few other places as well. It's not a huge update. Not a huge update because I know they're holding stuff for their voice announcement coming up soon. But a nice solid one. And they made a good improvement for those ESP Home users out there. There was a bug, I guess you could call it, in where they were saving some of the build logs. And it was getting backed up. And that doubled the size of the ESP Home backups. And so they've taken that log file out. It doesn't need to be in there. It only needs to be in there for the build time when you're, you know, like, say, doing an update. They've removed that from the backup, and it cuts the ESP Home backups now in half, their file size in half. So that's great to see. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. There's some of the good things in there. You know, it's not one I'd say you have to rush out to update, but I think if you're if you're comfortable updating fairly soon after release, because there isn't any major, major changes, it's a pretty safe one to jump on. I already updated my studio unit this morning. Now, there was a particularly cool ESP Home release feature came through this month. Did you know you can now compile an ESP Home firmware with native WireGuard support in it? Wow, that could be really cool for edge devices or all kinds of things. Wow. I'm just imagining something like, I don't know, in your garden, for example, that let's say is only available via a cheap cellular modem or something, and you want to monitor this stuff. We were were trying to uh, strategize a, a way for you to get that data back to the mothership, weren't we? Yeah, even when I'm going down the road, right? It's, we were going along building something, and it dawned on me, well, wait a minute. When the RV pulls out of the driveway, all of these sensors stop talking. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, kind of getting complicated pretty quick. But yeah, Alex, man, if the if you had like a Wi-Fi access point on a cheap cellular, because, I mean, not much data, right? On a cheap cellular a little yep. Wi-Fi device. And then these things are connecting back over WireGuard all the time, regardless. Oh, man. I mean, I'm just imagining the possibilities of having those, you know, three, four, five dollar ESP boards available to talk to, as long as there's an internet available, talk back to your home assistant. Imagine all the extra sensors you can have. Heck yeah. It's going to be pretty cool. And the data is protected by WireGuard. Well, I'll keep an eye on that. That, oh. Do you remember just a few years ago we didn't have WireGuard? It, it, was it like, felt 
Yeah, it. I watched it from the early days. It felt like it took forever to come to fruition. Well, all the things you really are excited about do, right? But I just, it just has been such an enabler of all sorts of really, really fascinating solutions and technologies. It's great. So I finally did the right thing and ignored everyone's advice and installed Spook. Have you have you heard of Spook? Does this ring a bell at all to you, Alex? No. When you put this in the doc, I must admit I had to go and read up what it was. So it's made by one of the core developers, Frank, and he totally doesn't recommend you don't use it. Do not use this. It uh, it's not meant for your average Home Assistant user. Perfect. I think they oversell the danger of it. It it extends Home Assistant functionality and it adds a few extra features to devices and entities, including Home Assistant Cloud itself. You can now toggle more options for Home Assistant Cloud. Um, and it gives you a couple of nice little ways to edit en- uh, entities. But one thing it does that I actually, this is why I installed it. It kind of walks through your Home Assistant config and surfaces any problems with entities or devices that aren't connected correctly or aren't working correctly that maybe you don't know about that are in some sort of air state and puts them into your notifications. So you can actually go take action and resolve the problem. And it can rate how serious the problem is and kind of give you a little bit of air output so you can kind of troubleshoot it a little bit. There's other really nice things it does, but that to me was the big one is to kind of have Spook go through and find these because I knew I'd had a couple from the holiday devices that I had set up, but then I didn't properly remove them. So Spook found them, identified them, and I was able to resolve the issue in like 30 seconds. That's pretty cool. I mean, there was a point where some of that uh, self-diagnosis stuff got a little bit spammy. I think they've turned that back down a little bit. Do you find that's the case with this? So far, it's only been that one thing that I kind of kind of was prepared for. Otherwise, it really hasn't bothered me at all. It it does have a couple of nice other enhanced features. Like you can um, when you're editing up when you're editing automations, it can add a couple of extra fields and and it, just things that kind of like I wish Home Assistant had anyways. But I think they just keep out because they don't want to add too many buttons and fields for people because they're trying to keep it clean. And this puts some of that back in too. I always wonder how, you know, when when people talk about keeping Home Assistant clean, like, I'm not giving it to my mum anyway. (laughs) One day, maybe. Just make it a power user thing and let me be happy. You know, though, there is a space because there are so many homes, and I see this all over the RV industry, where you you come into the home or the RV and they've got these touchscreens that are pre-installed in the wall now, and they're all using this entirely proprietary automation system. And in in the case of the RVs, it's like it even controls your slides and it just it's just a monster to deal with. And the systems burn out and they're very expensive. And I look at these and I think maybe one day way down the road, Home Assistant would just be the platform these things are built on. Like in the early days, we would build our own operating systems for every little device. Like if you got a, a home cable box, it had some custom OS on there. And then as the years went on. Everybody just started using Linux, and they just built their own thing on top of Linux. And maybe that could happen with Home Assistant. Then we'd at least have some standards and some, you know, local control and things like that. That's my that's my long term hope for where Home Assistant could go for like at least in in homes. Like you, when you see these propri- these proprietary home automation systems that are built into houses or these RVs, it's like they're stuck there forever. You can never change that, and it's like. The house could last 100 years, and that system's, after five years, probably abandoned. That is the promise of Home Assistant, eh? You know? I think uh, there are probably huge business opportunities that are yet to be tapped using 
home assistant for small to medium MSP companies to go around and manage not only residential properties, but also commercial Offices. properties too. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, Alex, what are we doing? Let's get a side gig going. You can do the East Coast installs. I'll do the West Coast installs. We got a business right here. And I would imagine because a lot of those proprietary automation systems have insane markups, you could probably still undercut them by half and still make a huge amount of money. Well, and you could also, if they wanted, offer networking solutions, internet connectivity solutions, VPN solutions. Just I, I'm talking in hypotheticals here, but I, I talk regularly with one of our listeners who does exactly that for a, a bunch of people near your hometown, Brent Sudbury. Not too far. Uh, what, really? So if, so if somebody listening is in the business, you got to call me. I'll go work for you. That sounds like a blast. You'd have to move to Canada, though, and eat poutine all day. No, I'm not. Do- well, I'll try the poutine. But- <laughs> he said poutine. Now he's he's regressed. Jeez. Oh, yeah, right. The poutine. I'll eat the poutine. <laughs> I think I'll stick with poutine. Thanks. <laughs> Can we change the subject, please? Can yes. we keep some decorum in here? Yes. Back to the okay. technology. Good. Now, Brent, I want to talk a little bit about your brother's TV setup. Uh, I don't know how comfortable you are me explaining your residential situation, but you live, ostensibly, you live with your brother, right? I live about a hundred and, what, 12 feet away? In In a a place more beautiful than Narnia, in cabins that are so ridiculously quintessentially adorable, you could just picture it. You can just picture it in your mind. Yeah, it's the truth. So to paint a picture, we were having dinner one night and there was just a herd of elk in the, the meadow down below Brent's Brent's cabin. It It's so beautiful. I can't even pictures do not do it justice. You just have to see it with your eyes. However, we got talking technology with uh, with your brother for a little you? bit. Weird. I know. And we were watching TV for a while and it dawned on me that the thing powering the TV was a ThinkPad. Tell, tell us about that, Brent. Uh, I love this ThinkPad and it's a collection of ThinkPads that I found at the landfill of all places. Really? Really? Yeah. When I lived up in Sudbury, Northern Ontario, there's somebody threw it away and it's ticking away today as a media machine. uh, That's what I'm saying. So they had electronics recycling, like a shipping container is exactly what it was. And I, you know, as a lover of all tech would just walk in there. Like every time I went, which is surprisingly often, I would just walk into this like giant shipping container, just see what's in there. And one day there was this load of like old ThinkPads. And so there was some like T60s and stuff like that. But one of them was a T440. And, you know, that's like far less old than a T60. And uh, the only thing broken on it, from what I could tell, walking into the shipping container, where it clearly says, you know, do not remove anything from here. It seemed like just the screen was broken and it was missing a hard drive. So I was like, I think that might have a future in my life. So I grabbed this thing and sure enough, got home, booted it up and it worked. And the only thing that didn't work was the monitor on it, which as we know, Alex, you and I have loads of experience replacing these monitors. It's really easy to do. But when I moved here with my brother, he didn't really have a good solution. Actually, he had a laptop running his television, but it was like 20 years old, like this ancient, ancient thing that could hardly even play videos. So I was like, Hey, I got this like old laptop I found in a rubbish bin. Uh, you want this thing? So it has since, for a couple of years now, been running their media center. The monitor is still broken because you don't even need it for that. And it's just sitting there ticking away. And and for the most part, it's been 
just perfect. Are they doing VLC? Are they doing Kodi? Like, what's what's the? Are they just like launching files from Explorer or the file manager? Yeah, I think its biggest use is uh, streaming stuff from a web browser. So they got like a little remote keyboard. Uh, you know, oh use... no, it's better than that. <laughs> okay, it's better than that. So I sit down on the couch. I sit down on the couch, and I'm like, okay, there is a screen in front of me. I recognize KDE. How do I control this thing? And both of the brothers look at me like I'm an idiot and say, KDE Connect, of course. <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm on iOS. I can't do that. And they go, are you sure? So I look in the App Store and lo and behold, sure enough, there is a KDE Connect in the iOS App Store, which I did not know. So you load up KDE Connect. It auto discovers the laptop, which is just, you know, the MDNS working there is just, you know, mind blowing to me. Uh, and then I'm able to control it, like using the trackpad with my thumb on the screen as if it's a mouse and type on a keyboard and send the, send my clipboard when I had to log into F1 TV and all this <laughs> stuff, you know. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it's got a real web browser, so you can actually log into that stuff and use it. Exactly. Yeah, when it comes around holiday time, we do like family video calls off this thing too, and we don't even move it. We just like angle it slightly and we just all sit on the couches and stuff. And we have this ma- ma- massive big screen of my parents. It's amazing. So it's multi-use. And Alex, I think it works, right? Well, you say that, but when I was there, it, it had a bit of a, a paddy, had a bit of a meltdown, didn't it? Yeah, I don't know what it was, but something caused the CPU to just get pinned at 100 to the point where you just, I couldn't even log in on the terminal, like, uh, you know, doing like a, an Alt F1 or whatever to get to, like... And then we tried to reboot it and it just hung. You know how like system D sometimes just won't let go of a process and the only way to kill it is to actually hard press the button. Yeah. So whatever, whatever it was doing, it was not a happy bunny, but uh, I'm reliably informed normally when I'm not there, it's very reliable. Don't you know? Well, I got a note from my brother, you know, I just had about Netflix time last night and he was like, Hey, did you touch the media center? It's not working again. So, Alex, I don't know what you did. Uh-oh. The media but... center. Adorable. <laughs> I mean, like, how have you not just been a little tempted to put Cody on there? Because it's got, like, a 10-foot interface, you know, or well, something. The, the challenge with Cody is that I, I put that system in thinking that I could also do a bunch of other cool stuff with it. So my brother and his wife's backup system, as you might imagine with most people, is just abysmal. Uh, he knows better um, and even bought a drive. And I've been trying to convince him, you know, to plug that thing in. So I was seeing this <laughs> adorable media center as sort of a multi-purpose uh, device. You know, it could run their TV, but it could just be also be sitting there doing silent backups of their devices and things like that. And so that hasn't materialized just yet, but that's the intention. So if you've, you know, only got Cody thrown on that thing, then... It might limit that a little bit, but I'm open to other solutions that might be better. Maybe Raspberry Pi 5. <laughs> no, now you're talking. <laughs> I, you know, there was a period of time, I mean, a long, long, long period of time where I had a full PC hooked up. I mean, I did use different media center UIs, and I inevitably would get like an IR remote for them. And, you know, you can really take it all the way if you want. You can get a real TV-like experience. You mean Windows Media Center back in the day, did you? I tried it for a hot minute and Myth TV for sure. And then there was like something called Media Center PC or something like that I tried for a while. And and then a Boxy. I tried the Boxy box for a bit, which I – oh, man. It's been a long time. You know, I think at the crux of most of the computers in my life, or at least my attempts at some kind of fancy infrastructure is – I always kind of want to give the longest life possible to some of these systems. You know, they're there, especially the ThinkPads. They just kind of seem to just go forever. 
And so, yeah, okay, maybe it, it isn't good for other things, but as a media center, like it just keeps going and going and going. It's like the Energizer Bunny. So I feel like it's just doesn't really make sense to replace it. It's yeah. Okay. It's probably sipping a bit more power than a modern system, but really it's doing exactly what it needs to. And it, I don't know, no reason to replace it. I think. Digging into the archives a little bit, if you'd like to hear Chris and I's journey to the NVIDIA Shield, episode 23, uh, we talked about our history with the Boxy Box and the Xbox Media Center on an actual Xbox back in the day. Oh, yeah, and the Popcorn Hour was in that episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a good one, I think. Um, but Brent, I really admire your just general approach to hardware, just keeping stuff going for far longer than I think I could personally be bothered to do so because I watched you a few times whilst we were there tinkering with stuff and I'm like if this was a newer device this this entire problem wouldn't be happening and it's just a, a question of you know personal values number one you know I you know you and your brother have this um don't buy anything new rule which I think is totally cool but then there is a time cost associated with that of tinkering with this old gear as well as a reliability cost that is, you know, tied to the time situation. And I just find it really fascinating how you get the most out of these devices for many, many, many years. And I think um, you should be applauded for that. Yeah, you're right. It does come with issues, right? Um, I've run into multiple strange issues because of hardware like that X220 I've got in my cabin here that is, is kind of my own uh, server system that's been doing backups and things for me. Uh, all of a sudden it just has started turning off almost like a thermal protection thing. And yeah, Chris is going to say cat hair is probably to blame, but, uh, and you might be onto something there. Almost definitely. Yeah. But yeah, these problems, I don't know, I guess that's the cost of having the ideals that I do. And maybe I'm yeah. just sort of, you know, tying one arm behind my back, trying to, you know, do the right thing. Well, I've thought I've genuinely thought the same thing is true with you, and sometimes your obsession with sticking with Linux in general. You know, th there's a big difference between you and I and how we approach things uh, in the world. I, I tend to have a bit more of a pragmatic approach. Like, I just need to get this done. Okay, that means I've got to use a Mac today, and I'll just get on with it and use the Mac. Whereas I know you would spend six hours trying to make it work on the Linux equivalent, and then probably still get the job done but it just takes a bit longer and it's it's just a really interesting it's it whenever you see someone that you know really well and how they approach them and live their lives i find it really interesting you know i think that strategy of like you said spending the six hours to solve whichever problem could just be solved by you know buying a newer device or a different device uh, that describes perfectly my linux journey um of just spending time learning things that you know it was a random curriculum that was just thrown at me with the problems that I would encounter either, you know, you update Arch and today it just needs some extra attention. So you learn a thing or two. Arch never breaks, by the way. In the end, it never breaks. Yeah, you're right. But uh, that, I don't know, feels like I learned so much just by being in the fire. And so these days, problems show up and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen that one before and, and you can solve it pretty quickly. Now, is that an excuse for sticking with things like Linux that break occasionally where other systems might not break. I don't know, but it feels good to me. Only in certain situations, you know, the Linux has come an unbelievably long way in the last 20 years. 
Uh, it's the de facto standard on the server. I just think on the desktop, it's never quite broken through um, because things like Mac OS and Windows have just maintained that mind share amongst normals. What I found really interesting recently is I was doing some work with uh, a less technical person and uh, I found it really interesting walking them through the steps of creating an SSH key and cloning a repo from GitHub and all this stuff. And they were like, oh, so this is why this is why everybody talks about Tailscale being really easy because it solves all of these problems for me. And I'm like, yes, this is why. And until you've lived that pain for a while, you can't appreciate just how nice it is sometimes to just have something work first time. <laughs> And Chris, I, I think you might also agree that learning how things work under the you know under the covers is also really valuable, even if you are using abstracted tools in your everyday. Just because when things do pop up, then you have those that ability to solve things. Uh, you've impressed me many times, and like just bringing knowledge out of your uh, system administration like background that I didn't even know. <laughs> existed and uh so i would imagine that stuff if you've you've gone through the pain of it just sits with you for the rest of your life yeah the fundamentals i think too there's different types of there's a long-term pragmatism to sticking with linux i have found because i'll drift sometimes on my desktop for my workstation and inevitably i always end up back on linux because like the platform will do something that i don't like on like say mac and it, it feels like i have no say or no control or no no real purview over even what's coming down the pipeline. So there's sort of like a, like, I don't want to have the rug pulled out from underneath me kind of pragmatism to it, but it is tricky at times. It's sort of the same mentality I have around self-hosting. It's like sometimes I can, you know, if it goes out, it's my own fault. It's like I can cause data loss. It does take more work to maintain it and back it up and keep it all up to date. But the practical side of me, which is the sort of the more the longer term looking at it. it's like if I if I can maintain that infrastructure then that entire time I'm not building dependency on whatever cloud service I replaced and all of that's private and all that activity remains private so it's just a I think it's a similar kind of mindset that ownership both good and bad is both a feature and a bug if you ask me now you boys have both gotten into car repairs uh, yourselves recently do you see parallels there? Because I sure do, of taking that kind of repair ownership into your own hands. Yeah, you're more responsible, but you know exactly what's what's happening. Yeah, and you can break it. Yeah, when well, my turbo boost pipe blew off because I forgot to tighten the clamp. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was yeah. my fault. So, And you knew yeah. instantly what you had, had done. I, I did my oil change the other day, and of course I was checking the air filter, and I got a call, and I answered it, and I never tightened the air filter box back down. And I drove home. And I thought, well, I'll check the oil level after it cooled for, you know, 15 minutes because now I want to see what it was after I drove for a bit. And I open up the hood and I can see all the screws are up on the airbox. And I'm like, oh, boy, I'm glad. Jeez, God, I'm glad I don't, I don't think anything went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'd know. You'd know. <laughs> Linode.com slash SSH. Head on over there to get $100 and 60-day credit and check it out for real with that $100 and see – while we've been using it for years now as our core infrastructure, and it just keeps getting better, Linode's now part of Akamai and all the friendly tools that we like, like their command line client, their great API, their beautifully designed web interface. That stuff's all there. You know, the things you've come to rely on or you've heard us talk about before and maybe are looking forward to trying. 
but now it's combined with Akamai's power and their global reach. They are the top brand in the biz, and they're expanding their services to offer more resources and tools while still giving us that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution for individuals or a business of any size. And the news just keeps getting better because as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, data centers are expanding worldwide, giving you more access to more resources so you can grow your business, your project, you can serve your users or distribute your load around the world. It's really powerful. So don't wait any longer. Go experience the power of Linode now Akamai by going to linode.com slash SSH. You got to go there to support the show to get the $100 and really kick the tires. So now you can see how things are really going over there and how much they're improving things. Go check out Linode, now Akamai, and see how they can scale your applications from the cloud all the way to the edge. That's linode.com slash SSH. So Axiom Joyride writes in, I've got a couple of Raspberry Pis that I use with Recalbox for retro gaming. Recalbox includes Kodi, which I've not quite made use of yet. I am not set up for network streaming my media, and for beginning simplicity, I figured I would just attach some storage and just have an all-in-one setup for gaming, all my old shows and movies until I'm ready to expand. I have started importing my media with MakeMKV. Could you maybe give me some insight or share some resources on how to organize and set up the metadata like titles, episode names, etc.? That's a great question. My, when I lived with Cody, my experience was you live and die on how you've named everything because if you if you nail that, then all of like the metadata detection stuff works. And so Axiom, I'll put two links in the notes on their their kind of wiki notes on naming things correctly, and then two links for some programs that I recommend. One is called Media Elk or Elch. Uh, which is kind of more directly connected to Cody, which will go through and manage all of your media. And then one is Tiny Media Manager. This is the one I've used before. And it will go through and scan everything and help you make everything named correctly. But then additionally, it'll pull down the metadata for like artwork, cast information, all the NFOs that Cody can just read automatically. And then it doesn't have to do that legwork. And it'll help you identify files that the system can't recognize because if Tiny Media Manager can't recognize it, Cody probably can't either. A couple of picks from me. Uh, FileBot is another one. Uh, This is paid software. It's uh, $6 for a one-year license. Or you can buy a $48 perpetual license, lifetime universal license. It works across Windows, Mac OS, Synology, Linux, Unraid, Docker, all that stuff. It's actually a really nice interface. It will match your media against online databases. So it will rename the files as well as generate the info files, like Chris was saying. Another option is you could use something like Sonar or Radar. You don't have to use those tools for piracy. You can use those tools as a legitimate way of organizing your media collection and renaming things with certain naming conventions and all the rest of it. And also that would show you what's missing really easily too. So you could complete the collection. That's a great idea, Alex. Now, I'm not uh, in the business of condoning collecting Linux ISOs, but should you wish to use that functionality, it's rather easily available once you have gotten on the R train. And, you know, I think your idea of keeping it simple, putting it all on one box and uh, using Kodi, I think that's totally doable. Set yourself up SSH because some of these things like Radar is a web app. You can get it running the Linux over I.O. fleet has a really easy-to-use Docker Compose you can get started with in a few minutes. Now, Recalbox was new to both me and Chris, but the retro gaming angle is a really interesting one. I don't wonder whether you could do something almost like the Steam Deck and have like a 10-foot a interface 
like big picture mode for Steam and then use something like uh, like this recal box thing to hook into all the ROMs and stuff you want to play as your uh, as your retro gaming box too. I know that Cody has a bunch of plugins for retro gaming, like retro arch type stuff as well. So like anything in the media space, there are 20 different ways to do everything. I'm kind of fascinated why someone would choose Cody and not something like Jellyfin these days. Every time I go back to Cody, it just it just feels like it's from another era. It's the client server model. So with Jellyfin, you've got to have the server instance running, which is doing all the indexing and the collating of the media and all that kind of stuff. And then you can run the client in a web browser or an actual application that you install on the box that you're using. And sometimes, you know, with Kodi, it's nice that you can just fire that thing up and point at a network share and it will just do the thing. You don't have to do any scanning, you don't have to do any indexing. So typically when Jellyfin or Plex fails for me, I will fall back to Kodi. That's when I typically use it the most. And if Kodi can't play it, then I know something's up. Yeah, that's my, my move too, Alex. That's like my exact move. I would, I would though, kind of say, I'm kind of with Brent though, if you're willing, you could look at the Jellyfin Docker container, it is a nice functionality. And then it just does all the metadata analysis for you, and it gives you a good UI. And even if you're just playing on the same local box, because Cody is a whole lot of everything, right? Cody's going to try to give you the weather. Cody's going to want you to be able to pick themes. You're going to be able to install all these plugins. It's also going to try to, like Alex said, it's going to offer you to be able to play the games. And maybe you don't want that. Maybe you want something that just focuses on media. Some people enjoy pain, though. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and Cody is solid. I don't mean to, you know, I mean, it's, there's still a great place for it. So, heck, I just recommended Brench and set it up on that laptop. Yeah, you did. Joshua wrote in. He's got a new place, guys. That's cool. Congratulations, Joshua. He says and he's just getting going with Home Assistant and his automations, but he's been getting overwhelmed. He'd love it if you could give him a quick refresher and a couple of sentences on the following. ESP Home, Tasmoda, and should he get into matter versus other standards? Okay, well, ESP Home is a way of creating firmware for embedded style ESP devices, which are tiny little $5 circuit boards with a Wi-Fi radio and some GPIO pins. Why they're useful is because in the old days, you used to have to write the code yourself in an Arduino editor and actually handle things like software libraries and memory management and actually understand what was going on. With ESP Home... You write a few lines of YAML and all of that is abstracted away from you by a bunch of very clever magic that ESP Home does. Once you press compile, it spits out a binary file. You flash that file onto the ESP device and you're good to go. Yeah, and they can work on your Wi-Fi or they even there's even ones now that have Ethernet. But the thing is, too, the ecosystem of devices that you connect to these ESP boards is just incredible. I was I was just browsing it before the show I mean, any kind of sensor you could possibly ever think of, you can wire to an ESP. And when you put ESP Home on there, it's really easy to work with systems like Home Assistant or other things that just use local standards. Yeah, it really is just a, a question of, of cost. You know, the, the amount of utility you can get out, out of $10 for, you know, a, a $5 temperature sensor and a $5 circuit board that has a Wi-Fi radio in it. You know, you think how much a commercially available temperature and humidity sensor is. At minimum, that's what, $20, $25? And that's going to be on Zigbee, so you need some kind of controller. The nice thing about these is they're on Wi-Fi, so you don't need any extra kit either. Yeah. All right, so where might I use ESP Home versus Tasmoda? 
we could i mean they're both largely interchangeable but the the caveat there is that Tasmota is precompiled and designed to run on a bunch of specific devices whereas ESP Home is just a lot more flexible both great um, and both fantastic for those of us who like to self-host. Uh, as far as jumping into Matter over other standards, I mean, like Alex said earlier in the show, if you can find a Matter device and you got a Matter radio, go for it. Otherwise, I'd probably skew towards Zigbee, Z-Wave, and then Wi-Fi. The ESP devices are pretty solid on Wi-Fi, um, and I just have a dedicated IoT 2.4 gigahertz, which I think is something people should consider. I think I've got about 40 in this house. Yeah. And yeah, and they they never fall off the Wi-Fi. I mean, I've got three Unify access points in the building. So I've got some pretty strong, pretty good Wi-Fi dedicated 2.4 gig IoT SSID, all that stuff. And they are just flawless reliable. You know what's interesting is the Shelly devices as well are essentially just ESP boards yeah. baked baked into a proprietary firmware that they they let you flash Tasmota or ESP Home onto as well, you know. So they are very, very flexible devices. I think most, I think most Wi-Fi IoT devices get a bad rep, but they've been pretty good. I've got, I've got a bunch here in the studio. I've had one since day one that drops off, and I think it's just like a bad one. The rest are all super solid. Good luck. Keep us posted, Josh. On how it goes, give us an update. Now, while we're talking about media centers, Jellyfin this week put out a call for developers. We need contributors, they say. Fresh ideas and fresh blood to help bring the project forward and move past our current funk into something more. Our current funk. Yeah, you know, they they noted in the blog post that the reaction to the recent Plex news that we responded to, a lot of people said, we'll switch to Jellyfin. And they said a very common response they would then see is, well, I don't like Jellyfin because of X, Y, Z. And I think the devs just sort of went like, "Mm." Look at all these reasons people don't like Jellyfin. Like, they want to essentially rally the troops and start working on those things. Good on them, I say. Now, we got some boosts into the show, as we always do. Thank you, everybody, who boosts in and supports the show. And our baller this week is Coffee, Bacon, and Linux Yum. with 52,476 sats using Podverse. He says, so another win for Tailscale. I've been running NextCloud on my Tailscale network for a while. But this last week, I had a need to give someone access to some files and for various reasons, I couldn't add them to my tail network, my tail scale network. So I got a cheap VPS installed, and I put tail scale on there, and then a little Nginx reverse proxy. I pointed the proxy to my next cloud over the tail scale network. A few settings, tweaks, and bingo! That yes. piece of feedback was basically written for me and Brent, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Coffee Bacon and Linux. That's a nice story. Such ninja <laughs> moves, too. Very impressive. That is very sim- something similar we did uh, for a live segment on Linux Unplugged where we had a box on the LAN that we wanted to give the audience access to live, but we didn't want to expose the public IP of the studio. So we did that same setup on a, on a Linode. Thank you for letting us know, Coffee. Galactic Starfish comes in with 52,087 sats. Howdy. I've been wanting to boost in for a while, and frankly all the JB shows, for a few months. Somehow, though, I lost my MoonPay email address. I couldn't top off. But figured it out with Cash App, and now I'm here with Victory. I recently purchased an M1 Mac Mini, as per Chris's musing, to finally get into self-hosting. I slapped Nick's OS on it, and I have just been having a blast. Tailscale, NextCloud, and eventually some Home Assistant shall reside upon this box. All good stuff. I'm looking forward to the meetups this October. Thanks for the wonderful show. 
Other apps are available, you know, people. <laughs> I know, you're noticing a theme. <laughs> Tailscale, Nextcloud, the MVPs of self-hosting. It, well, it's, it really is like, uh, because you build on top of it, right? Like Tailscale obviously provides the networking, but once you have Nextcloud, you realize there's so many, so many different options out there that will use Nextcloud as a back end. There really are so many. Yeah, I see them almost as like catalysts or enablers to so many other possibilities. So they're like the foundation and then you just build a bunch of stuff on top of those technologies. I mean, for my, you know, because I'm an Android user now, for my Pizel 7. Oh, I you, was, really? I had not yeah. you mentioned it. You know, you're using Android now. Uh, I've essentially replicated iCloud from photo to storage to notes to location tracking. It's pretty great. And it's all running on top of the cloud of Next. And Galactic, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the meetup. That's going to be awesome, and thank you for the support. John A. is back with 20,000 sats using Castomatic, and he says, I ordered a Home Assistant Yellow, and I got mine in a month. You know, John, I think it was folks that ordered it when the CM4 was available, or if they ordered it without a CM4 and supplied their own, like, like a lot of folks did. They got theirs, but then what happened not too long after the Yellow launched is the Raspberry Pi folks just couldn't ship. And that's sort of outside of Home Assistant and Nebuchadnezzar's control. Kind of unfortunate timing. And I think it, it forced a lot of us self-hosters to go look at other alternatives. Nord came in with 10,000 sats using Castomatic. Okay, so it would be fantastic to hear more about ZHA versus Z2M. I myself have Z2M running in an LXE container with MQTT and another one in Home Assistant and yet another. It's working great. But I've actually considered the opposite move of Alex, and I thought maybe I'd migrate to a central solution using ZHA, which is the stuff built into Home Assistant for Zigbee. Using the Sonoff something coordinator Natena, I could maybe have it all working great. Uh, he also likes the IKEA TradFi. Um, he thinks it works better, I suppose. Now, Alex, you kind of changed your mind, actually. You're, gonna, you're thinking about going with ZHA, too, so... Well, I mean, I've been on ZHA for a while now, and with the Conbi that I've had, as we've documented in the show... It's not reliable enough for me to depend on. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I, I put up some of those IKEA blinds before I went away, the smart blinds. Uh, and Catherine messaged me on a couple of evenings saying, blinds aren't working. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So you have to walk up to them and actually push the button. And she's like, I'm too short. Well, get a stool. You know, so it's just not an ideal situation. So I really do need to find a way to make those blinds in particular now really more reliable than they have been. So that's why I've ordered the Tubes ZB device, which you'll hear about more next episode. Uh, but this might be a good opportunity for me, even though it says it's not supported on the piece of paper I got, to try out Zigbee uh, Z2M, Zigbee to MQTT. Well, they talk about it on the website as like it's supported. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess I'll try a few things out, and I've got some Zigbee bulbs here, and a couple of IKEA buttons, and a, an Akara button that I ordered as well that just came in a couple of days ago. So I, I'm trying a whole bunch of different suggestions from the audience, and uh, you'll hear more about it soon. Nice. Okay, and our last one this week comes in from Kmog, I think, using the podcast index, and we'd put the uh, ask out there for some financial tools. He says, I have one. For zero-based budgeting, I've settled on buckets. It's not perfect, but it's replaced my Windows Adobe Air YNA4B executable. I was having to run through wine. <laughs> oh, that's good. He says, I'm using Nextcloud to sync it across my machines. It's not open source, but the developer seems to be reasonable so far, kind of similar to the Reaper model, which is our recording tool. I have a Nix expression that just packages it up as an app image for me. I've been using Startmail 
and I haven't had any issues. I've compared the different providers. I didn't want an office suite, and I already have Nextcloud, so StartMail is affordable. It's simple, and it's privacy-respecting. It allows custom domains and unlimited aliases. I also have another Next expression to configure postfix for outgoing email, so it's the closest to having a self-hosted email without having to deal with hosting the actual email. Okay. Smart mail. Start, start mail. I am going to investigate mail. that this week. That looks absolutely amazing. Good tips. Can I ask a Nextcloud question? Are you allowed to ask those? I thought you were supposed to be the purveyor of yeah. all Nextcloud I thought we're supposed. Now. Yeah, we're supposed to ask you Nextcloud questions. Yeah. Okay, well, I have, uh, I don't know, you can call this feedback or, or an ask for feedback. Um, in my investigations, and from what we heard, a ton of people are running Nextcloud, which is amazing. Thank you. Now, I run it with the Snap, and i that's because I did it like five years ago, and it's just been kind of going and going and going, and I haven't had to do anything with it. So let's hope it stays that way. Or you're scared to touch it, you mean? I mean, a little bit of A, a little bit of B, you know. Is it is it staying current? Is it self-updating? Yeah, it's on Hub 6 and everything. What I appreciate about the Snap uh, team who's looking after it um, is they kind of test things before sending it out. So they don't just send the newest version out the day it goes out. They actually, you know, put some effort into trialing it and making sure nothing breaks and stuff, which is always good. I mean, the developers of, of Nextcloud and the community there do their best. But yes, you know, things happen. <laughs> but the question I have, I guess, starting with you boys, but also for the audience is, how are you running your Nextcloud? Because there's so many ways to do it, and I find it confusing, and I'm supposed to know things. So what I'm seeing, at least if you want to do it through containers, is there's an official Nextcloud Docker image, but it's a little confusing because that's a community project and not actually an official Nextcloud image. So that is confusing, even if you know what you're talking about. There's the Nextcloud all-in-one container which some people love, some people find a little bit challenging and confusing or not flexible enough if you're coming more from a professional background. There is linuxserver.io, that way to run things. You know, So I'm seeing millions of downloads on linuxserver.io, 500 million plus on the quote-unquote official image. The Nextcloud all-in-one has like far less than that, I think at like 5 million or something like that. But there are also a bunch of other different ways to run Nextcloud. And I've just been curious. I, you know, I thought I knew how people were running it and I actually realized I don't know. So I would love to hear. And if you find this whole container situation confusing, then I'd like to hear that as well. Or if you think it's just fine, maybe it's just me. It's a great question. Uh, I use the Linux server IO image just always have historically. I thought maybe next time I, I do a go around, I might try just doing it all through Nix. But myself, I'm using the Linux over IO image. And why why from there? And why not just, I don't know. Well, because it it's been really straightforward. And um, I, I kind of always have used those because they do this. They, uh, something that people didn't think about early on was user management properly and setting the user IDs correctly. And Linux over IO has been really great at that. And it's pretty straightforward, but I think it uses SQLite, which uh, not great, not great with Nextcloud. We're designed, I think, to just make the initial setup as simple as possible, which, similar to the Snap, will eventually bite you in the ass. Uh, you know, the the idea behind making things easy to get going with compromises is it's a laudable goal, but in the long run, 
if you're going to rely on something like Nextcloud to do critical stuff, putting a proper database like a MariaDB or a MySQL or something behind it is just common sense, the way to go. And we've seen listener Jeff have endless <laughs> issues with his Nextcloud for reasons I don't fully understand. Cosmic rays, I think. <laughs> Poor Jeff. But to answer your question, Brent, on air at least, uh, I I just use the official Nextcloud image. I just use Nextcloud tag 26 if I look at my GitHub right now. So, so like the Docker official image, which is the community run. Yeah, yeah. And that's been working for you. Yep. Pretty, pretty much flawlessly since I lived in London. I just migrated. Does that ship with SQLite? Uh, I don't know officially, but I have been using a MySQL database uh, with that Nextcloud instance. I've migrated across two different VPSs, and now finally it lives in my basement in North Carolina. Actually, no, it started life under my stairs in London. <laughs> then I put it on a DigitalOcean VPS. Then I moved it to Linode, and then I moved it across That's down so to, great. to Raleigh. Yeah, same container. Uh, I forgot there's also the wonderful folks at Nextcloud Pi. They do a Pi-specific image, and they kind of do a similar approach of like trying to make it easy to... Oh, Brent, there's, the rabbit hole goes deep because there's all those like... Uh, true NAS. You can do the true NAS, like, uh, you know, with their... There's also there's those NAS devices. There's those platforms like Umbral and things like that that will have all their own app stores. Yeah, let us know. That'd be great to I'd be great to hear from the audience on how they have their setup and any nuances and if you've had database issues and if you've been using Snap, all that. Thank you everybody who did boost in. We did not get to all of them on the air, but we'll link to the boost barn in the show notes. They will be enshrined in our doc. We had twelve total boosters. We stacked two hundred and eighty-five thousand five hundred and forty-nine sats. Thank you very much. You can boost in with a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. If you want to keep your app, well, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on, but if you want to keep your app, just use Alby. Getalby.com top it off and then boost from the index we have links in the notes and thank you to our sre subscribers out there you make the show possible you support the show you give us like a leg to stand on let us be picky on who we choose to be advertisers and as a thank you we give you an ad-free version of the show with a bit extra a post show at the end if you'd like to sign up and support us directly self-hosted.show slash sre or all the great shows at jupiter.party uh, now I've made the decision not to travel to Seattle for Linux Fest or the the weekend formerly known as Linux Fest. Just too much going on with work and travel and all that kind of boring stuff. And I'd like to see my family for a bit. So uh, maybe I'll see you in the spring. Oh, yes. Until then, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact for all the different ways to get in touch with us. And you can find me on my new links website at alex.ktz.me. And there's still lots of meetups happening Friday and Saturday. Those details are on the Linux Fest Northwest meetup, not ours. And that's at meetup.com slash Linux Fest Northwest. And Alex, I think you're going to be at All Things Open, aren't you? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's coming up in, well, just a couple of weeks now, I think. Yeah, so if you're in the Raleigh area, stop by, say hello. I'll be at the Tailscale booth. Well, that's exciting. Brentley, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to hear more Brent, catch him on Linux Unplugged every single week. Thanks, Brent. Yeah, anytime. So thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 107.